let's say a curve does flip uh, Uniswap for CBETH liquidity and that trading volume starts getting sucked into curve. Uh, well, then they, now they have like almost 90% of trading volume with LSDs uh, and that's going to be a massive moneymaker for them. Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. This show is made possible thanks to our incredible sponsors, Chainalysis and Flipside. Uh, we're recording this episode on January 3rd, so Happy New Year, everyone. Um, and this episode is going to kind of go hand in hand with our last episode. So we did a 2022 in review last year, and our last episode, and then this one is going to be uh, kind of our thoughts on some of the major themes we're going to see throughout 2023. Uh, so no interview today. It's just a BlockWorks analyst going to rift on a couple different topics. Uh, so we're joined by Zero X Pibbles and Westy today. Uh, and guys, how we doing? Uh, I'm, I'm excited to get into this one. We've got a lot of good discussions uh, lined up for the day. Uh, so I can kind of kick things off and get, get into you know, one of my, my ideas of what we're gonna ex- something we can expect to kind of unfold uh, throughout 2023. Uh, and it's really just the, the broader topic around liquid, liquid staking derivatives. Uh, it's been a pretty hot topic on CT over the last couple of days. And I think a lot of that has to do uh, with Shanghai upgrade coming soon. Uh, and of course, the Shanghai upgrade enables withdrawals. Uh, so users that have staked ETH have the ability to now unstake. Uh, in the current state, that's just not possible. That They're kind of like rolling out the tech gradually. Uh, and this is kind of like one of the next major pieces that gets added into Ethereum proof of stake and really kind of builds out the entire staking side of, 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 the, of the equation here. And, you know, with withdrawals enabled, there's kind of like this question around, okay, well, how many people that have staked uh, are now going to unstake? Uh, and our Ethereum asset profile on Dune actually has a, a really cool chart that uh, lays out it, like at what price did each depositor um, deposit, stake their ETH at? And there's like only like 20% of depositors are actually like in the money or they, uh, you know, uh, have essentially deposited at a lower ETH price than the current price today. So 80% of the people are like underwater on their staking deposits. And I kind of like think there's an interesting dynamic thinking about, well, okay, well, which side of the equation is, is going to be the one to unstake when this happens? Or maybe is one side more likely to just withdraw rewards uh, that are now free floating and they can like leave their 32 ETH staked, uh, but sell off the rewards to kind of lock in some of the profits that they've made and try to fight back towards even. Uh, so kind of like an interesting thought experiment and there's really no right answer, right? It comes down to like every depositor is going to have a different opinion on how they want to, how they want to interact uh, with these unlocked rewards. Uh, but I do think it's just this interesting uh, kind of thought experiment to walk through, uh, especially because, you know, after withdrawals are enabled, I, I personally believe, you know, the broader theme here is really that liquid staking derivatives are really going to take off. Um, they have improved capital efficiency, given that they can be used composably throughout DeFi while still earning the staking rewards. Uh, and they also provide immediate liquidity. So if I want to exit my position, all I have to do is swap it through a DEX and I don't have to wait through a withdrawal queue. With, uh, withdrawal queue. Uh, and so, you know, Ethereum kind of has this interesting dynamic where it kind of, the proof of stake, uh, proof of stake Ethereum grew up with liquid staking. Um, and that really hasn't kind of been something that we've seen on other major proof-of-stake blockchains. Like you think about something like uh, the Cosmos Hub, like the Atom token is very heavily staked, uh, but they have a different implementation of proof-of-stake, right? So you can just delegate tokens. Like I can have two Atom uh, and stake them through another uh, validator, whereas with Ethereum, I need a full 32 ETH to solo stake. And liquid staking really just kind of removes that, right? Like I can have a very small sum of Ether uh, and stake that directly into the network and, you know, accrue some rewards and participate in network security. Uh, So it kind of brings about this this new way of getting involved. And because Ethereum essentially grew up with liquid staking existing, I think it's going to see a very high percentage of usage and adoption throughout 2023. 
Um, and so right now, this ETH stake rate is around 14%, which is very low relative to other proof-of-stake chains. If you look at something like uh, the Cosmos ecosystem chains, it's, they uh, have, a, have like a system rewards to be around 66% or two-thirds uh, of the token staked. And that just helps like participate with network security, right? And if you look at something like Avalanche, that's in the 60s, I think around 64, 65. Uh, Solana is a bit of a tricky one just because locked tokens can also be staked, but depending on how you calculate it, that's around 60 or 70% as well. Um, and so we're definitely going to see Ethereum's stake rate jump significantly, I think, throughout 2023. Again, with Shanghai going live, that's like kind of this last piece uh, in, around, in what staking really is for proof of stake. Uh, and I think that's going to give people a little more confidence around, okay, now if I stake my assets, I can immediately unstake them if I so choose to do so. Uh, and that just kind of like, you know, you're not really like freezing assets. They're just be fully liquid if you want to solo stake. Um, so I think we're going to see a massive boom in the stake rate uh, and a large portion of that being driven by liquid staking itself. Uh, so in the liquid staking landscape, we have a pretty interesting breakdown of kind of who's dominant and who's not. Right now, Lido's got about 60% of the liquid staked ETH market share. Uh, Rocket Pool is in that as well, as well as Coinbase ETH. So it's like two decentralized options leading the way. Um, and more recently, we've seen a large push from Coinbase kind of pushing uh, their, their users into this. And so I think like the way that we're going to be thinking about this is like really a trade-off spectrum between yield uh, and convenience, right? So if you think about Coinbase, you can stake on Coinbase with two clicks, literally. You buy ETH and then stake it and agree to the terms of service and you're locked and loaded. Um, and because of that convenience, you know, they take a 25% fee. So their yield is going to be noticeably lower than something like uh, Lido or Frax ETH or something of that nature that takes usually around 10%. That is, is pretty much industry standard for the decentralized options. Um, so I think this is like going to be an interesting dynamic of where we see this value flow. Um, and, and yeah, I'm curious if you guys have any takes on that or, or love it, hate it. How do we feel about it? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that 2023 three is going to be the year of LSDs, especially for ETH. Like you said, when you look at comparable numbers and the Cosmos ecosystem, ETH has a lot, a lot of ways to catch up. And I think with the Shanghai fork and withdrawals enabled, I think that's definitely going to sort of push it towards, I think it's like 70% Cosmos, but I think it's, it's not going to get quite that high, but it's definitely get higher than it is now. And I definitely think the interesting conversation is sort of the players within the LSD ecosystem and how that plays out. Um, I know there's a lot of people that think like Lido has 60% of the market share right now. And I know the market's sort of pricing on a relative basis, these, these other uh, competitors like rocket pool, uh, stake wise, et cetera, that have um, like a lower TVL to market cap ratio and are basically being priced as higher on a relative basis than Lido thinking that Lido might lose its market share. But some people think, you know, Lido might keep its market share. Um, as well as, like you said, Coinbase is a new competitor on the market, but um, there's going to be a lot of institutions that want to stake their ETH and do so using a custodial service. And Coinbase is obviously the biggest one for these institutions. And so I could see CB ETH definitely gaining in market share versus, versus Lido. And then I was also looking at the, the Ethereum forums, the Ethereum research forums. And there was actually a post from June of this year or June of last year basically outlining a governance-free LSD that would be at sort of the ETH base layer. And I think if that gets introduced, it also shake things up a bit because um, it sort of maximizes the yield, as you said, where 
you're paying 10% fees to most of these providers and 25% to Coinbase, whereas in this case it says you're only paying 3% fees, which gives you higher yield, and it probably has higher security guarantees given that it's created by the Ethereum developers and not the core level. So I think if that gets introduced, which I'm not expecting it, but it's definitely possible given that it's in the forums and has a lot of support behind it, uh, that could shake things up as well. And so, yeah, I'm interested to see how things shake up. In my opinion, I think Lido maintains its dominance, but Coinbase sort of catches up. Um, and I think just overall, as, as um, a sector, the LSC, um, it just all all of them sort of rise together overall. And I don't think one sort of overshadows the other. Um, but yeah, I don't know if you guys have other thoughts as well. Yeah, so what I'm most concerned about with liquid staking is where the revenue is going. And, you know, I'm obviously going to be most interested in the governance token of a project that's actually going to share the revenue. Because it's great that you make all this revenue, but, like, what are you doing with it and how do I profit off of it? Um, so, like, right now I know that Frax has the 8% of their fees are going to go to buying back the Frax shares token. Um, we don't see anything with Lido yet, but that's something to keep an eye on and we have to monitor. And then the second thing is... We have to figure out the health of the validators. Like, you know, why am I going to go stake with Stakewise, who doesn't have as much of a reliable track record for getting validator rewards and dealing with slashing? So I think um, some sort of dashboard that kind of like ranks the health of each liquid staking protocol, staking, staking protocol, and um, kind of indicates the reliability will be critical infrastructure for 2023. Yeah, strong agree there, Pibbles. I also just think that, you know, you've got 10% of the rewards going to um, not people staking. So 90% goes to the stakers, 5% goes to the treasury, 5% goes to um, the actual node operators. And that's something that Lido has done really, really well. They've picked like 28 really high quality validators. So their uptime's perfect. They never get slashed, that kind of thing. Um, I also know they're looking at uh, implementing a distributed validator technology, which should improve the decentralization of Lido and like kind of reduce the attack vector on the Ethereum protocol itself. Um, I also think that most of the unlocks for LDO are pretty much in the rearview mirror, and I'm sure there's a lot of investors who had funds during this bear market who are accumulating it, and I'm sure they want to turn on like a fee switch similar to to Uniswap. So I think that value will eventually accrue back to LDO token holders. So I think my favorite bet going into the next year is uh, LDO, but I also think CBETH is gonna gonna garner significant market share given all the institutions that want in on the action. Yeah, and something Coinbase did that's really interesting interesting with uh, regard to attracting some of that institutional money is their retail par- product charges a 25% fee, but their institutional product is only 10%, which is in line with the decentralized options. Plus they get providing this custodial factor as well, which we know institutions find uh, quite comforting. So I, I do think Coinbase is really poised to take a huge, a huge gash into some of this market share. Uh, but again, like the market itself is growing quite significantly. So I think there's room for a lot of uh, competitors to, to kind of you know, battle into this. Uh, but one of the interesting knock-on effects of, of liquid staking is really just how, okay, so you, you, know, you have all this liquidity, right? It's liquid staking. Now where does that flow, right? Into DEXs, of course, because uh, one of the key advantages is being able to s- sell your token uh, on command. And so 
Um, we have a chart here with Flipside's great data. They you know, have great DEX data on Curve, Uniswap, Balancer, and Sushi, which is really where a majority of this volume is occurring. Uh, and so right now, Uniswap is by far the most dominant DEX in terms of volume. You know, they do like 60 plus percent of all DEX volume, uh, with the exception of when you look at just LSD, or liquid staking derivative volume. Uh, or it's actually like roles reversed with Curve, and Curve is actually doing like 75%, 80% of that uh, LSD volume, and Uniswap's really only in that 20% range. And so if we look at this chart here on, we have on the screen, and for the uh, viewers, and for the listeners rather than the viewers, we're looking at the DEX volume share of ETH liquid staking derivatives, and we have a 30-day moving average of the amount of volume d divided specifically by token. Uh, and so staked ETH is responsible for around 60, 63, 64%, uh, of all volume, and of Coinbase coming in second in there, around 20%, and then Rocket Pool, RETH coming in uh, third with around 10 or so percent of volume. And so if, you th if you're a DEX, like, you're thinking, okay, well, how do I attract this liquidity uh, to eventually be kind of like the lead role player in, in exchange volume for LSDs? And, and that's going to be an increasingly large field, right? Like if the market's growing and then now the withdrawals are enabled, so there's going to be an arbitrage opportunity that's, you know, relatively quick, probably a couple day withdrawal queue. Um, and now there's like a massively growing field that's very, you know, pr particularly liquid. Um, I think that we're going to see an explosion in LSD volume. And I wouldn't be surprised to see some of the larger liquid staking tokens uh, kind of being in that top three, top five of of exchange traded tokens, right? So we're going to obviously have ETH and USDC most likely. That's a very common pair, uh, specifically on Uniswap. And I think in that top three, top five, we're going to have a liquid staking derivative token. And so if you're a DEX, obviously volume translates directly to fees. And you're going to want to be having these kinds of tokens listed on your exchange in deep liquidity. Uh, and pretty interestingly, Curve already has by far the deepest... Um, liquidity for staked ETH, and that has a lot to do with the fact that staked ETH is a rebasing token that doesn't really play well uh, with a lot of current contracts, and Uniswap is one of those. It's just not compatible with their Uniswap V2 or V3, uh, and because of that, a lot that immediately that liquidity was born uh, into Curve, and now I don't really see that changing. Uh, it's, a, you know, it's a, almost a billion dollar pool. I think it's around $750 million of liquidity there. Uh, so Uniswap actually does have Coinbase ETH in the deepest liquidity, um, and that's what's where a lot of that volume does occur today. But it's pretty interesting. We're seeing a little bit of a, a Coinbase or CB ETH wars starting to break out. Uh, Curve has actually increased their uh, rewards flowing to that pool, and uh, they increased the CRV emissions. And starting next Thursday, there's actually going to be uh, the yield on that pool jumps from 5 to 10% because the founder of Curve, Mitch, has increased his percentage of voting on that pool. Uh, so it's going to be pretty interesting to see if some of that liquidity flows out from Uniswap to, um, to Curve. And ultimately, like, this kind of shows that you know, maybe not all token emissions are created equally. And if you can effectively use token emissions to increase organic revenue uh, in trading fees, then that's ultimately the goal. So it'll be, I think it's a really smart move to see Curve kind of battling in this direction. Um, but again, you know, we can see if Curve now, let's say, let's say Curve does flip uh, Uniswap for CBETH liquidity and that trading volume starts getting sucked into Curve. Uh, well, then that, now they have like almost 90% of trading volume with LSDs uh, and that's going to be a massive moneymaker for them. And, you know, we can really see that illustrated on this chart. 
uh, just given that you know, Flipside makes this data so easy and so accessible. And they really do have the most comprehensive on-chain data in crypto. Uh, so you know, it really gives you the opportunity to get the insights you need to work smarter. Uh, and you know, we actually have uh, a little bounty going on. So if you're interested in uh, querying data and you have some SQL skills, then this is definitely for you. Uh, be sure to check out the link in, this, in our description uh, for an opportunity to earn some free USDC. Yeah, that, that is super interesting data though, Dan. I mean, considering they're taking 25% of all staking rewards, like that is going to be such a cash cow for Coinbase. And considering where Coinbase is trading, like kind of makes me want to dabble in it. Like, what is it at? Like three times earnings and it's like a high growth stock. Like, and they've got a hundred million users using their app, you know, every month. So I, I definitely like that play. And I think it was Matt from Bitwise. who was talking about how he really likes the Coinbase play as well. So, but uh, that's a, a good segue into, into my kind of 2023 uh, prediction for the year. I think that an OG DeFi protocol or alt layer one will announce plans to launch as an L3. I don't think we'll actually see anything live on testnet or anything like that, but I do think we'll see kind of similar to how DYDX announced their move to the cosmos in the beginning of uh, 2022. I think we'll see a similar thing happen towards the tail end of 2023. I mean, you've got L2s, like pretty much every L2 is like putting together an L3 strategy. You've got the OP stack, you've got StarkNet moving StarkX. So all the applications like DYDX, Immutable, um, and a couple others are going to actually be L3s on top of StarkNet. Then you have ZK Sync following the L3 vision as well. And I just think that projects that were born on Ethereum won't want to make the same decision that DYDX did. I think that they're going to want to remain loyal to kind of like where they started. Um, so I think going to an L3 to enhance their kind of customizability and take advantage of some of those trends is going to be something that we definitely see as a narrative going forward. I also know that uh, MEV can be extracted as an app specific rollup. Um, so I think that revenue will be returned to either the treasury or token stakers and then provide more utility to the tokens. And we see this with Sushi Swap right now. You know, they're kind of running out of runway. We've talked about it a few times the last couple episodes. And I think there's a lot of OG DeFi protocols that have a lot of really good product market fit for their applications, but then not such good tokenomics. So like Maker, Aave, Comp, Uni. Um, so I think that this is a really good outlet for them to uh, try and redesign their tokens. L3s offer a lot of different advantages over being just an app on the Ethereum L1. You're going to get higher throughput, even more so higher throughput than an L2, thanks to the recursive proofs and kind of their multiplicative scaling nature. Um, and then you've also got better control over the tech stack in general, not quite as customizable as a Cosmos app specific chain, but you definitely get more um, customizability than you would as an Ethereum dApp on the layer one. Um, I also think like you'll see, you know, different data availability structures, like you'll see a lot of Validiums launch in this system, uh, where basically there's a data availability committee securing the data of the ledger. Um, and then I also think that those, uh, those committees will kind of be secured by the token. Uh, so that also provides more utility for the native token of the dApps. Um, and then also you get uh, privacy um, with the L3 scaling solutions and cheaper interoperability between the, the, the L2, L3, L3 to L3. Um, so I think that's going to be a huge narrative going forward. I don't know if we'll actually see anything launch on testnet, but I do think that we'll see someone announce uh, towards the tail end of 2023. Yeah, the L3 structure is really interesting. Um, I do have a question for you, though. So 
like, okay, so if we have this one standardized prover, then we can have a network of L3s built on top of the L2 with the standardized prover that can all communicate with each other. But if we have multiple standard or multiple provers with multiple ecosystems built on them, then how does that become any different than like the Cosmos e ecosystem, right? You're still going to need to bridge between the two uh, L3 ecosystems because they're not going to be interoperable without that standardized prover. Um, so like, I do agree that we're pushing in that direction, but like I start thinking about how long it's going to take to come to consensus on what the best, best proving technology is, right? If we have like five teams building it, um, there will probably be some that perform better right out of the gates, but then the teams that have the worst performing one aren't just going to like throw in the towel and be like, oh, yours is better. I will just use it. They're going to be like, no, we're going to build ours and make it better than yours. So I don't know. I, I want to hear your t take on kind of like how we get to that point of standardization. Yeah, I think Alex said it best from ZK Sync the, the other week. I think that you are going to see a lot of competition in like the next two, three, maybe even four or five years. But I think at some point there will be like marginal progress made instead of these huge leaps that we're seeing today. And then like everyone's going to kind of come together and be like, all right, this is the best standard that we should all work towards. And I think whoever kind of develops that their L3 ecosystem will ultimately end up being the winner. And then applications that are built on, you know, let's say it's uh, Starknet and they're the one who wins. Like, I think that the L3s that were built on ZK Sync and Polygon ZK EVM, et cetera, I think they'll all kind of migrate towards that one standard prover. Yeah. And building on top of that, like different L3 ecosystems, like you might need bridges to, to go between them, but people are also building ZK IBC, which is derivative of IBC and Cosmos. And so you're going to be able to have at least better bridging capabilities from one to the other. And so it does end up looking a lot like Cosmos. But I also do think this is a, like a really good thesis, just in the fact that, I mean, on our last episode, we looked back to last year and Rollups in terms of their adoption, we're just up and to the right, both from a user standpoint and from a development standpoint. And once we see these, these ZK rollups launch uh, this year, and like you said, we see L3s and at least one or two are successful, um, I do think that one of these applications that lives on Ethereum and is very much aligned to the Ethereum ethos chooses to build on an L3 or maybe even their own app-specific L2. I definitely see that in the in the future. Yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting to watch it play out. I just, I guess, I feel like it's the best way to stay Ethereum native while also, um, I guess, providing your token more utility. So I'm excited uh, to watch it play out. That's for sure. But Westy, I know you got a, a kind of a topic on the the same vein for today, so I'll pass it over to you for your thesis for next year. Yeah, it's definitely very well connected to yours, but. Mine is that essentially app chains, application-specific chains will grow exponentially in 2023, both on Cosmos and as app-specific roll-up L2s or L3s, as you talked about. So, like I said, app-specific chains that started in Cosmos, uh, through the Cosmos SDK, you could essentially create uh, a chain for yourself, and it can be application-specific. Um, and essentially through IBC, you can connect to other chains and have that composability. Um, so the point of having sort of an application on a generalized L1 is sort of the ease, ease with which you can build your application. You can just sort of build and have it on the L1 available to use, as well as the composability with other applications. And Cosmos essentially allows um, more customization at the L1 level, so you're not basically required 
with whatever, let's say you're using ETH or Solana, you're basically tied to the design decisions they have. But at the same time, you still have that ease uh, through the Cosmos SDK that's just available to use, as well as the composability through IBC. Um, and I think this app chain thesis is going to gain a lot of momentum in 2023. I think specifically because uh, DYDX is migrating from Stark, Stark X to its own Cosmos chain. And I think if they are successful, which I think it's very likely that they are, given just the, the team's capabilities and what I've heard so far, um, if they are successful, I think that's going to pull a lot of other developers to think along the same lines and see, oh, okay, DYDX was able to do these things that they couldn't on Ethereum previously and have to do on their own chain, as well as providing more value to their token. Um, and so DYDX sort of becomes that trial run. Um, and I think we're also going to see a lot of other Cosmos chains launch in 2023. I can think of a few off the top of my head, like Mars, uh, say Babylon, even Stride as well, are building their own chains. And it'll just show even more how, how powerful these app chains can be. And then like Sam alluded to earlier, um, there are a lot of developments in the roll-up space. And I think um, L2s and more importantly, L3s will become a, a big launching place for these app-specific chains, given that a lot of these applications built on the EVM want to remain to, aligned to Ethereum and don't necessarily want to just abandon ship and go to something like Cosmos. And L3s allow for most of that same customizability as well as having really, really low fees and remaining aligned with Ethereum. Um, and I also think we're going to see a lot of app-specific L2s built with the, the OP stack, as well as other different things. And I know AVO is one of those examples, which is an op options exchange built on Ribbon, which is going to be its own app-specific L2. And I think just as the roll-up ecosystem builds out and there's more um, composability across different roll-ups, either at the L3 level using the same prover or at the L2 level. I know the OP stack is trying to build sort of like a super chain of their L2s. And then there's also the ability for ZK rollups to have um, synchronous composability, like sort of at the L1 level uh, where they all settle down, which I think is super interesting. And so, yeah, I think we just see an explosion of app chains, especially in my opinion, as applications on a relative basis to these generalized L1s get more value, I think they're just going to grow exponentially over the next year or so. I, I definitely agree. And I think um, if twenty two or 2022 showed us one thing, it's that the FAT protocol thesis is kind of dead. And I see app chains as kind of like the revamped opportunity for, you know, big protocols that have a lot of users, they still struggle to accrue value. But I think having their own specialized app chain or roll up is the move and will probably be how the fat protocol thesis could come back to life. Yeah, I love the concept of app chains, right? Like if you think about even like building a protocol in general, like let's say just on Ethereum main chain, why is that exciting? And you know, you can go to like global wallet distribution, you can access the whole world immediately. Uh, but one of the more interesting things to me is the fact that you have a token and that doesn't exist in the physical world. It's kind of like this new design space uh, that crypto has really invented. And then if you take that even a step further and say, okay, well, then what's different between uh, an app on main chain versus an app, app specific blockchain? Uh, well, now you also have a token in an app specific blockchain, but you also get the expanded design space of the validator set. Uh, and seeing what gets like built out into that design, uh, into the, the validator set 
space is, is very, very intriguing to me. Uh, if you think about something like ThorChain, they kind of like use their validators to secure vaults on other chains and like create this decentralized bridge network. Uh, we had Chad Barreford on the other day kind of like walking us through what that whole process looks like. And then you think about something like DYDX, you know, they're coming to the Cosmos. Uh, they're building an app chain specifically for the purpose of decentralizing uh, their protocol by creating a decentralized order book that's run within the validator set's uh, memory, the RAM. And that's really interesting, right? Like that's just something that physically can't be done um, without an application-specific blockchain. So kind of like giving developers a bigger design space is just, I'm, I'm inherently bullish on that idea, uh, and I really don't think that will change. Yeah, and another thing there is with protocols that didn't have their own app chains, um, those were so much easier to fork. Like you saw it happen time and time again with DEXs, GMX, et cetera. So this definitely gives that bigger moat for these teams to really innovate and not worry about their stuff just getting jacked like next week. Yeah, strong agree with that spent or shit. All right. Yeah, strong agree with that Pipples. Uh definitely agree there and it's also kind of interesting that we were just talking about uh liquid staking derivatives and LDO. I think that's also another pretty solid uh play in order to get some exposure on all these proof of stake networks in the Cosmos ecosystem. Um cuz I'm sure they'll they'll be super active there as that market grows. But I also wanted to take a second to thank our wonderful sponsor, Chainalysis. They're one of the leading crypto analytics providers that are helping build the tools that we need to legitimize our industry. They enable investors to, investors to track funds on-chain with ease, and they also have some great research, which is available for free on their website. They also have some really cool courses that they offer um, if, in case you want to get really in the weeds of the crypto stuff. Uh, so they're definitely worth checking out, and uh, we will link to them in the show notes. But uh, Pibbles, I know you got a pretty good 2023 thesis, so I'll kick it over to you. Yeah, so my thesis kind of goes along with L3s, but it's a little more specific. And I'm talking on-chain order books. I think AMMs definitely had their place in time. Whenever Uniswap first came out, we needed an easy front end and infrastructure to kind of swap whatever tokens we want. But personally, I don't like using AMMs because I get terrible execution. And I'm really interested... And anything that is high throughput and low fees that can kind of give market makers more of an edge and more predictable profits. I think we see a couple interesting order book protocols popping up. Like obviously we have Say coming out in the Cosmos, and I think that's going to be a really interesting case study. We'll just have to see how the actual like VCs uh, vest their tokens on us. So we'll see how that goes. But then you also have like Solana had Serum, and now we have OpenBook popping up, which is just a Serum fork minus the predatory VCs. I think both of these are just really promising for 2023, and um, we'll have to stay tuned to see how that pans out. Yeah, strong agree with this one. I've always been saying that we need more central limit order books. I just think they haven't existed because they're not very compatible with the ETHL one. But now that we have rollups as well as well as chains like Solana that have parallelization that just allow for quicker transaction throughput, that finally we can build these central limit order books. And I know in AMM, AMMs, a, major, a large majority of people who provide liquidity end up losing money. Um, and I know there's a lot of toxic flow that goes through uh, AMMs as well. And so I think just for better price execution um, in general, better liquidity, Overall, I think C lobs are just just better infrastructure. But at the same time, I do think there's a place for MMs, especially with um, stable swaps specifically, because like um, if you provide liquidity for a stable swap, 
uh, you're not really getting impermanent loss, especially if those two tokens are uh, structurally um, correlated with one another. Um, and you can earn yield in a different way than, let's say, lending out your assets. I think it's a structurally better way to earn yield. And so just from that fact, I think AMMs specifically for stable swaps are definitely going to stay around and will achieve product market fit, whereas I think we're going to trend more towards central limit order books when it comes to trading uh, non-correlated assets. Westy, you just kind of hinted at how Curve is better suited to kind of thrive long term because they typically target like assets that are, you know, pegged one to one with each other. So what does this mean for Uniswap? Are they working on anything for for a, a, a club that they're trying to launch? Or do you think there's going to be a new competitor that comes in and, and completely takes away the market share? Yeah, I can comment on the Uniswap order book. I know that the labs team funded a grant that is working on building a Uniswap order book front end. But I'm not so sure how that's going to work because, again, you can't have it on like ETH mainnet. So like what's going to happen off chain? Is this going to be an AWS order book, et cetera? Yeah, I feel like we just don't have the tech to have a central limit order book on chain today on Ethereum. Like I think the L3 ecosystem makes that possible or even like um, I think it was to Westy's thesis that, you know, like kind of like the L2 side of things get built out. Maybe you can have like an app specific roll up. Uh, sort of like Avo. I don't. I don't know actually if a central limit order would be possible in that particular environment. But I don't know. I feel like we still need to focus on like building out the tech before that can really happen. Uh, then, it, but like sp specifically on Ethereum, um, of course, like Say is trying to do this in the Cosmos ecosystem, and Solana already has an operational version of this live. Uh, but is the Serum, or I guess now it's called Open Book, uh, is that like is there a order book? fully decentralized or like how does that work is it is it it's all on chain right i believe yeah i think it's all on chain and actually last week i saw something and it looks like jump is already using open book to try to do some high frequency trading so that's pretty neat i think there's definitely going to be some sort of farming opportunity coming up probably in the first quarter when they actually decide to launch an open book token and that's going to be really fun. And we'll definitely have to have a report about that. So just recapping, we got a Cambrian explosion of LSDs coming to the Ethereum ecosystem. Then we have an increased number of L2s and L3s in that ecosystem developing, uh, as well as the application-specific blockchain uh, sector as well. Uh, and then we also have kind of the transition away from AMMs to CLOBs. That's like a lot of technical innovation. And, you know, when you think about that, like it just kind of puts things in perspective that like, yes, prices are so shit right now. Uh, but there's a lot of different things moving in a lot of good directions. And it, it's like, it's crazy. It's like, yeah, the, the macro environment's so bad for price appreciation, but literally everything else feels so good. You know, we're like trending towards better tokenomics. We're improving technology from a scalability and usability standpoint. UX is significantly less shit than it was two years ago. Uh, it's like actually becoming easier to use crypto and like easier to say like, hey, this would be a great way to on onboard some of my friends that maybe have never used crypto before. So uh, it's just like once we kind of get through this macro black hole, maybe like there's just so many reasons to be bullish. It's like so frustrating. Yeah, definitely. And there's a lot to be excited about. Like you said, from like the development, like network level, especially with Ethereum, there's a lot of upgrades coming this year. I mean, we talked about the Shanghai fork and that's in, like that upgrades implications, but there's a lot of other things being built 
like account abstraction um, is also being built. Proto dank sharding will get as well. And I think there's going to be a lot of trading narratives around these Ethereum developments. So with proto dank sharding, I think a lot of the roll-up tokens will see a pump. And then LSDs are off the back of Shanghai, as well as Eigenlayer being developed, which should come around mid-2023. I think those it, it increases the value of ETH staking and therefore LSDs. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot to be excited about at the ETH core level from roll-ups. And yeah, I'm just super excited uh, for 2023. I got a question for you, Westy and Sam. You guys are the L2 gurus. So when right now there's like this seems to be this huge focus on like scaling L2s to get to a point where they you know, are like mass adoption, uh, mass adoption utensils essentially. But when do they like kind of shift that focus to like actually decentralizing um, and like becoming that fully like right now, for example, you know, I'm pr- my understanding is optimism's fraud proofs aren't even live. So like it's sort of just like, an, yeah, it's connected to Ethereum, but there's no way to challenge the validity of the state. So like when do they shift into saying, OK, like this is going to be a fully functioning decentralized L2? I could take a stab at that one. I guess I just think these things take a long time to decentralize and it really is just like a waiting game. Like. I would call Solana or Avalanche or some other alt layer one more decentralized than an Optimism, an Arbitrum, or really any other L2 live today. But that's also just a time thing. They've been around longer than you know these L2s have. Plus, the technology that they built with is more similar to something like a Tendermint or uh, you know something that's already been built before. Whereas L2s are really just a new groundbreaking technology, and I think it's going to take longer to decentralize that process. And I think right now the main focus is getting users, building up adoption, making the user experience as good as possible. Um, lowering transaction fees, all of that stuff that L2s are supposed to do to scale Ethereum before you actually decentralize. And if you have that base layer where you can go back to that is fully decentralized and that's like, you know, censorship resistant, I think that's that's the main point right now. But I do think at some point this year, we'll see an L2 start to like kind of take off the training wheels as Vitalik has has said in the last couple of weeks. So that would be another prediction I would make for 2023, but I don't feel as strongly about that one as I do uh, the, the thesis I laid out earlier. Yeah, I think it also depends on the specific project. So no scroll was like very heavy on, we need to decentralize the sequencers and the provers as soon as possible, whereas others are sort of more lackadaisical when it comes to decentralizing things. But at the same time, just think about the incentives like these projects are incentivized to have a mainnet that people can use the applications are on. And that's sort of where the incentives lie, less so the decentralization. They just want something up and running that people are using. And so they're going to focus on that side of the tech. And then like the decentralization security part of things comes later, unfortunately. But that's just the way it is. And I think, like Sam says, like later this year, we'll definitely get some of these projects decentralizing more and more. And I think once one project does it, uh, others are going to follow suit after them. Um, and it is going to take time. I think later, later this year is when a push is going to happen, but I think it's going to take a few years, if not maybe five years, before things are like fully decentralized, secure, and ready to go. Yeah, my question about Altus, I know this was an issue on Arbitrum like a year ago. I'm not so sure what the situation is now, but is the throughput basically limited by what the sequencer can handle um like if if someone was to do like the other side mint right now on arbitrum 
is Arbitrum dead? Like, is it going to be able to process all those transactions? That's something I'm like pretty clueless about. So, in like at first thought, I just think like maybe app chains offer a better advantage there. Yeah, I would agree in the current state, but I think it just comes down to like Ethereum just recently coming into the vision of becoming like a roll of a roll-up centric like layer essentially for data availability and, and settlement. Um, so I don't know. I guess I would just say that I think that um, proto-dank sharding is going to drastically enhance the ability of L2s to like compress their data and post it to Ethereum. And I think that's only going to get better. And it's actually kind of funny because Westy and I like to look at that chart that's like the percentage of L1 gas used to settle L2 contracts for like a measure of adoption. But it's kind of ironic that you really want that number to go down as transactions go up on L2s. Cause that would mean that L2s are scaling more effectively. Like what we're seeing is exactly what you're pointing out. It's like, it's starting to get congested a little bit. So I think it's going to continue to improve. Um, but yeah, uh, I think it's something that's still being worked out. But Westy, I don't know if you have any thoughts there. Yeah, back to Pibble's question. It does depend on the sequencer. I know a lot of them use Geth, which is the same as sort of Ethereum transactions. And so if the other side mint were to happen, you'd probably have a lot of failed transactions, but the gas fees would be significantly less than that of the Ethereum-based layer. Um, but yeah, I agree with everything Sam said after that. Yeah, I mean, it kind of just feels like ZK Tech is really going to, you know, move L1s from like, you know, you hear the phrase zero to one, but I feel like optimistic rolls were kind of the one. Uh, and now we're going from one to two, if you will. Uh, because, you know, you think about like, I wasn't trying to throw rocks at uh, optimism earlier, but like, you know, I'm, like they're trying to get to like the OP stack state. Like this is far from their end state. If you think about Polygon right now, they're like a proof of stake uh, commit chain, which is essentially a side chain, right? And, you know, they're a bridge secured by a multi-sig. Um, you know, Arbitrum's kind of in that same ballpark as well as, as the other two. And then you think about like ZK and that's really when things can kind of like, see, that seems to be like the next transition point. So once we start to get like a ZK mainnet live, uh, start to like ease into some adoption there, uh, that's what I'm really excited about. And I know ZK Sync uh, is pushing in that direction. Yeah, and as much as we were excited about the base layer technology, what I really want to see in 2023 is just one application that really takes off and has product market fit with not only crypto specific users, but with just normies in general. And I think the thing that's likely to do that is a game. Um, and so, yeah, I'm excited to see, or I at least hope we have some sort of game that brings in a lot of people into the ecosystem. Um, but overall, I do think the value trends towards applications versus the base layer. And yeah, all we need is some applications that really take off to really prove that the tech that we are building is worth it. Which chain is the best chain to build a game on today? I'm Team Solana. We saw uh, the step in Ponzi get money token. That was killer. And they, they chose Solana just because Solana was equipped to handle that kind of load. And I think with the Saga phone, Sega phone, whatever you want to call it, I think um, that's going to open the door. I think there's going to be like a really successful game that's like kind of as addictive as Candy Crush that's going to come out on Solana's phone. And I think that maybe their strategy is to have some awesome game that people are printing money on, and it kind of drives orders for the Sega phone through the roof. I mean, I personally think that once L3s are live, those are the primary place. I think first off, because really, really low transaction fees, um, but also 
account abstraction is really huge for games and that you can have session keys where you don't need to keep signing signatures anytime you use a game. You just keep doing one transaction after the other really easily, as well as the fact that these games can pay on pay for transaction fees on behalf of the user. And because they're on an L3 that then settles to an L2 and then the L1, the transaction fees are really, really small. And so that becomes really easy for the application to do. And I just think from like a UX standpoint for the developers, as well as for the users, the L3s are just perfect for gaming. I'm surprised none of you guys say this, but I would go with Harmony. Secure bridges, DeFi kingdoms, doesn't get any better. <laughs> no, I'd, I'd go with Westy. I strongly agree. I think they already have like the infrastructure built out with uh, Immutable X as a primary marketplace for NFTs and games. And I think when they go to StarkNet as an L3, um, and then you see other games launching as L3 utilizing their marketplace. I think that has a lot of catalysts for success. You're going to get some hate mail for that one. <laughs> yeah, I probably will. So all in all, we have a Cambrian explosion of LSDs. It increased adoption of L2s and L3s and even application-specific blockchains. And we see a transition from AMMs to CLOBs. Uh, so, you know, pretty exciting. Like, as I said earlier, you know, there's just so much to be bullish about in this space right now from a technology standpoint. Um, so once kind of like the markets calm down, Sentiment kind of settles out, flat lines, um, you know, then it's really kind of like a back up and to the right, you'd want to think just because of all the development going on. So it, it really is an exciting place. And, and as always, you know, thanks a lot for joining us, Pibbles and Westy. That was a great conversation. And we will be back next week, uh, next Wednesday with a new episode. We have an exciting interview with Sri Ram from Eigenlayers. So we're doing some uh, Ethereum scaling, sticking on the same vein. Uh, excited for it. And thanks again, everyone.